turn this morning to Isaiah chapter 9 in your Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah chapter 9. Looking forward to the ninth, the choir will do their cantata again, always an enjoyable time, and then the fellowship afterwards, so appreciate all their hard work, and then wanted to express thanks on behalf of the church for all who have worked hard to decorate or put things together over the past few weeks. The church looks great. You always do a great job. You know, there's a lot of hands that go into uh, getting the sanctuary or the fellowship hall or other parts of the church uh, looking nice, and we're very grateful uh, for what you've done. So Isaiah chapter 9 today, again, as I said last week, we'll, we'll spend the Advent season this year in Isaiah. We've done Advent in Isaiah before looking at the servant songs, and this year we're looking at those passages that focus on the coming of Jesus, especially in terms of God sending children to deliver his people. So we'll read today from Isaiah chapter 9. I'll give you a heads up if you use the bulletin to take notes and or to follow the outline. I ended up changing the wording of uh, the different points there as I was reviewing the notes this morning. Just didn't, didn't quite like the way uh, that read. So you may catch that difference as we go through this morning. But Isaiah chapter 9, and I will read for us verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for your word. We love it. It is our delight. And I pray you would... Teach it to us, especially as, as folks read the Bible during the week or at other times and perhaps hungry to know how it all holds together, what it's saying. Lord, be our teacher. Illuminate our eyes so that as we read and hear this morning, we might understand this passage and perhaps even be equipped to read more of your word and to love it. And then, Father, we pray as we read the word, we would be taken to you, to God himself, to behold Jesus Christ, the object of our faith, and to worship you and to serve you, to be transformed, to go out and love and serve others, and to take, to embody, in a sense, your presence, your image to 
uh, this world. Bless the church, the work of the church, for the calling of others to faith, for the nurturing of faith for those within its bonds, and, and grant that it will then also be able to disciple the nations and teach them uh, what Jesus commanded us to obey. And meet whatever need is here this morning, whatever, however folks have come in, whatever may be on their hearts, whatever their need is, Lord, speak to that, I pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, the Bible celebrates the unexpected. When a group of parents brought their children to Jesus, the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus welcomed the children. And told the disciples that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, unexpected. In another story, Jesus places a child among the disciples. Maybe he has the child stand where they can all see this child. And he tells them, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There is something about children that reflects God's ways in his kingdom, which some have referred to as an upside-down kingdom. And so small wonder, then, that we find a focus on children in the early chapters of Isaiah. As one commentator puts it, these children function as signs of God's presence. And we even have that language in chapter 8. Isaiah saying, here I am and the children God has given me. We are signs for Israel. And the point of that language is to say that through these children, God preaches a message. Some of those children are or were in Isaiah's day already alive. Again, Isaiah's children themselves function as signs, such as Shir Jashub, whose name means a remnant will return. Interpreters have seen in his name either a warning of the severity of judgment, only a remnant will return, or a promise of restoration. Despite judgment, still a remnant will return. And this is the son who accompanied Isaiah when he spoke to King Ahaz in the passage we considered last week. And other children are then promised in Isaiah's prophecies. Again, the verse last week from chapter 7, verse 14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. A son is coming, a child. And this child will be a sign that God is with Judah. Before this child grows up, the coalition of kings oppressing Judah will fail. But not only that, as Matthew looks back on Israel's story, one of the disciples who witnessed the resurrected Christ, he reads Isaiah's story in the light of Christ, and he sees a promise of something even greater. The virgin-born Son of God who saves his people from their sins. And that emphasis on the coming deliverance, good news for the future, that continues in the passage we have read today. Again, God, through Isaiah, promises to deliver his people and gives us here in this day and age reasons to celebrate God's goodness and God's mercy. And at the same time, by using a child, to express his image, an idea that might be against the grain even in today's society so much more. Back when Isaiah and Jesus lived, through these children, God expresses a message. 
Through these children, God shows us just how counterintuitive, how unexpected his ways can be. Ways that force us to consider our own wisdom and to reconsider what God offers us in the gospel. And so for that reason, let's consider this morning why God delivers us through a child. And we'll consider three reasons. Here's the first. One, because we need to learn to trust like children. Young children are by nature dependent. You just don't set them down on the floor and go into the other room. You have to keep an eye on them because they are dependent on you to take care of them. Well, let's see what happens when the Israelites don't recognize their dependence on God. When they think in their wisdom, they can do without him. Notice the first half of verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun in the land of Zion, or Naphtali. What is this gloom, this humiliation of which the prophet speaks? Well, the answer lies in the previous chapter, where again we see Isaiah's children preaching a message. So look back just for a moment at the opening verses of chapter 8. I want to read a few from the previous chapter, beginning with verse 1. The Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So I called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Jeberechiah as reliable witnesses for me. Then I made love to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to say, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Now, as I read those verses, did you notice how similar that language is to the promise of the virgin birth? And we argued last week that that promise had an immediate fulfillment in Isaiah's day. On one hand, it referred to an ordinary birth. And yet it also foreshadowed the virgin birth of Christ in time to come. Well, the birth of Isaiah's child here, that could be the immediate fulfillment, the near fulfillment that was expected in Isaiah's day. His name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, it means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. And it's another assurance that God's deliverance will come swiftly. Ahaz, you don't need to make an alliance with Assyria. Because before the boy knows how to say, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Before that child grows up, those threatening kings will be gone. But that's a promise that demands a response of trust. And Ahaz and the inhabitants of Judah, for the most part, are not giving it. Notice verses 6 through 8. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloah and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. 
It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, Emmanuel. You see, Ahaz prefers to trust Rezin, the king of Aram, perhaps the leader of the coalition, instead of trusting God's promises which are compared to the gently flowing waters of Shaloa. Perhaps a gentle stream, a quiet stream, just isn't very impressive to Ahaz. He wants military might. Well, because of that, God will give him what he wants. The mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, that is the king of Assyria, who will overrun the land of Judah, despite the fact that God is with them. Notice the reference to Emmanuel there in verse 8. And the point there isn't that God has gone back on his promise. You know, I'm present with you, but I can't deliver you. It's if you won't trust me, I will be present with you in judgment. And so Isaiah gives this call in verses 13 through 14. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Israel, if you will trust me, if you will regard me as holy, I will be a sanctuary for you, a safe place a foundation upon which you can rest. But if you will not trust me, if you reject my presence in favor of Assyria, then I'll be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And so how does Judah respond? Not well. Look lastly at verses 19 and 22. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists, who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. The people don't consult God. They consult unreliable sources. And so darkness and gloom will be their portion. And don't get me wrong, Isaiah 9, it's going to open on a note of hope. We'll focus on that in the next point. But for now, consider this is the context. It's this context of judgment that is the background for the promises that follow. God is going to humble the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, as well as Galilee of the nations. And those are provinces that Assyria established when they conquered the northern kingdom. They came into Israel and they took over and they set up their own government and they deported its residents to Mesopotamia. They brought new settlers from there to live in Israel. And eventually, the the Assyrian king, the emperor, would set his sights on Judah. And so I say that God delivers us through a child in order to tell us something. That we have to learn to trust like children. God gives us that image and and he pushes us into a corner almost in order to say, look, you've got to choose. Will you trust me or not? 
And when we fail to trust him, when we follow our own path, we get ourselves in trouble. That's what so much of these opening chapters of Isaiah are trying to get us to see, as one author puts it, dependence upon our own resources. Dependence on our perspectives for guidance can only lead us further into the darkness. And instead, God offers us himself and his promises that when we trust him, good things will come. So as we come into the holiday season, I love how EL set it up this morning. You're going into a season that may have some extra stress or extra worries, or maybe you're already thinking into uh, the new year. Just ask this question, what's determining your path? What are the key choices before you? And are your decisions based on trust or are they based on your own wisdom? And even if you say, okay, well, I don't have major life decisions in front of me. It's just the ordinary decisions. How am I going to live today? How am I going to love others? Okay, is God's truth affecting what decisions you make? Because when you trust him, that's the good path. And that's something we got to learn as children. So here's another reason why God delivers us through a child. Because we experience God's love as his children. Jesus uses the image of fathers and sons to teach us about how God loves us. He says in Matthew 7, 11, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Do you enjoy giving gifts this time of year, especially to children and grandchildren? Is there just a real delight in that? I hope so. Well, think about it like this. If you and I, corrupted by sin, delight in being kind to others and especially to our children, then what are God's long-term plans for his children? Even when they rebel against him, it is to show them mercy. And that is what the rest of this passage celebrates. So again, back in chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now, From Judah's perspective, when Isaiah is speaking to the people, these events are still in the future. The judgment has not yet come. We have a past tense translation because Isaiah speaks as a prophet. He's speaking from the perspective of the future. And from that perspective, the promised judgment has come. And now God is going to act to restore his people. So it's one of those beautiful pictures where before the judgment even comes, while God is still warning them to turn away from those ways, he is also promising them that afterwards, restoration will come. So despite sin and rebellion, nothing can prevent the light of God's grace from shining. So how will God do that? How will he honor these people that he had previously humbled? Well, first, verse 2 reads... The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. There's that language we saw at the end of chapter 8. Gloom will fall on the land because of Assyria's invasion, because of the oppression of that foreign nation. But darkness 
is not God's final word to his people. As one author puts it, it does not satisfy him to see his people experiencing the just results of their rebellion. And so God therefore acts to reverse his people's plight. And verse 3 tells us more about what that will look like. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Invasions often result in a loss of territory. But God will enable Judah to push back against her invaders and enlarge the nation. And with this victory will come joy, the same kind of joy that accompanies a harvest and a successful battle. Notice again, all the battle imagery. That's what they're facing through judgment. But one day, God will reverse it. And in verse 4, he gives assurance of this when it reads, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. In other words, Israel, don't you remember how it was in Gideon's day when the Midianites oppressed you? How did God deliver you? Through your wisdom and might? No, he shrank Gideon's army down time and time again. And then he used that small number to defeat the enemy. God is going to do that again. In Judah's future. And the result will be the end of warfare. Verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. Will be fuel for the fire. Those boots are marching to war now. But eventually God will cast them into the fire. Because they'll no longer be needed. And as one commentator observes, if even boots and cloaks are being burned... We may be sure the weapons are disposed of, and even more surely, those who wielded them. God will defeat those enemies. Now, why would God do this for Judah? Because they and we are his children by grace. And and we're even given a clue to think that way in the previous chapter, right after God warns them. That Assyria is going to sweep through Judah despite the fact that God is present with them. He says this in verses 9 and 10. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be... Excuse me, I already read that. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Now, wait a minute. Assyria will sweep into Judah despite the fact that God is with them. And yet Assyria will not succeed because God is with them. That's when this, in the space of three verses. Okay, Isaiah, which is it? Well, again, on the one hand, it depends on the response Judah makes to God. Will they regard him as holy Or not, Isaiah says, here I am, we will put our trust in him. But when we turn the page to chapter 9, we also hear God saying, despite your lack of trust. There's no moment between 8 and 10 where the people finally get it together. The only thing that happens is God saying, despite your lack of trust, I promise to save my people. 
Yes, there will be humiliation. Yes, there will be consequences for disobedience. But in the future, God says to his people, I will honor you. Why? Because that is how grace works. Despite the darkness that is our own making, God's grace shines on us. And so I would encourage you, again, I think especially this time of year. Maybe stress adds to uh, how you're feeling. Moments of regret, reflecting on the past, worrying about the future. Let grace control your outlook on the future. By grace, through faith, we are the children of God. And God's actions towards you, His plans for you, are in accordance with His gracious purposes. We have hope despite judgment and sin. And that's a message God tells us through children. Here's the last message then God gives us, last reason God delivers us through a child. Because we need to see how radical God's ways are. I mean, think about it. You're facing the mighty Assyrian Empire. You think you need some impressive military might, but instead, God gives them a child. Verse 6 reads, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. One commentary asks, How will God deliver from arrogance, war, oppression, and coercion? By being more arrogant, more warlike, more oppressive, and more coercive? Surely the book of Isaiah indicates frequently that God was powerful enough to destroy his enemies in an instant. In other words, if God just wanted to up the ante and say, I can do that better than you can, he could have. But what do we find here in Isaiah again and again? When the prophet comes to the heart of the means of deliverance, a childlike face peers out at us. God is strong enough to overcome his enemies by becoming vulnerable, transparent, and humble. That is the only hope, in fact, for turning enmity into friendship. And I can't think of a better description for the ministry of the Lord Jesus and what we read in the Gospels than that. Isaiah's image of the child is how he overcomes the rebellion of his own people and the evil and oppression of the nations. And of course, later in Isaiah, there's another image, what? The servant, the child and the servant. And so as we said at the beginning of the message, the Bible celebrates the unexpected. If you had asked Judah what they need, they probably wouldn't have said a child. But God knows what we need. And that is to be delivered from ways of thinking that come naturally. Ways of thinking that feed our sense of superiority and importance. We need ways of thinking that humble us to trust in God's ways. And when we do that, look at what God gives us. Just look at these titles quickly in the moment we have left. He gives us a wonderful counselor. You see, unlike the folly that characterizes the opening chapters of Isaiah where they all listen to themselves and what came naturally, this child, he knows a better way of wisdom. Trust God. Find strength 
in weakness. That's the wonderful, good counsel he'll give you. And that is the person on whose shoulders God places the government of his people. Whom will God trust to govern his people? Someone who trusts him like that. Not only that, but God actually gives us himself. This child is called Mighty God. And sometimes in the Old Testament, rulers are called gods, and nobody mistook them for the deity. In other words, they represented God in their reign, and so to oppose the king is to oppose God himself. So on the one hand, you could just read this language as, yeah, they're going to be a good king. But again, I think it's like the prophecy of the virgin birth. This establishes a trajectory, one that those living in Jesus' day recognize because of the resurrection of Christ. Knowing what God has done to him, that God has vindicated him. Knowing who he is, that he is highly exalted. They can look back on the Old Testament and see where it was headed all along. And that's why Matthew actually cites Isaiah 9. There, as Jesus begins his public ministry, Matthew says this fulfills what was said through the prophet Isaiah. The people sitting in the darkness have seen the light. Where have they seen the light? In Jesus, the Son of God. You see, some living in Isaiah's day might have said, you know what we need? We just need a better king. And guess what? They got one. The next king after Ahaz is Hezekiah. And he was pretty good. But even Hezekiah had his shortcomings. And the kings after him failed. And so looking back after the reign of Jesus begins, because God raises him from the dead, these New Testament authors can see this is what we need. The resurrected Son of God reigning at the Father's right hand. That's the mighty God come to be with us. And last two descriptions. This child is the everlasting Father. Now wait, that might seem strange. We speak of Jesus as the Son of God. But the Father is the Son. How does that work? Well, both in the Bible and even outside of the Bible, they will use the language of fatherhood and motherhood to express rulers' care for their people. And I think that's what we have here. The ruler will care for his people. He will govern them with justice and righteousness. No more sham rulers. No more kings who are in it for their own benefit, which even David succumbed to at times. This will be the righteous ruler. And finally, he'll be the prince of peace. And not only does that mean the end of hostility, but even the wholeness that God's people need, where our relationship with God is whole. Our relationship with others is restored. Our relationships with ourselves is healed. Our relationship to creation is made whole. And today, you can celebrate how good God's deliverance is. And you can also rejoice in the fact that it's counterintuitive that God works against our expectations. And maybe that will drive you to just look for some ways in your life Where maybe God is still doing that. Maybe he's still continuing his surprising work. In other ways, doing some things in your life. It's it's not what you would choose. But it's wise. And you can trust God to take you down that path. That's why he delivers us through a child. So that we will trust him like his children. So let's give thanks, friends. Let's pray together. Father in heaven. Thank you for giving to us this son.
And I pray simply today, make us a people of trust. Make of us a people who are focused on you, who zealously seek your kingdom first and make that the whole purpose of our lives. And forgive us for when we don't. But but that will all stem from hearts that are transformed to trust you. Make us a people of trust. And so that then as we go out today, the actions we choose, that they would be the actions that flow from trust. The decisions we make, the way we think, the way we look at life, the way we relate to others. Make of us a people of trust who have the actions of faith. Do that for our church. Do that for our families. Do that for our lives. And we give you our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.